invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 6. We have reached the passage that some of you have been waiting for and curious about since we started Genesis, what in the world we're going to do with that. I confess I've also been a little curious to know what we're going to do with it when we get here. Still maybe even a touch curious. But let's remember as we do read this, we are reading the Word of God, no less the Word of God. So let's read Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through just to verse 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we have gone through Genesis thus far, we have seen the growing corruption of mankind on the earth. We noticed Cain, of course, very early on after the fall in chapter 4, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then just a few generations later, one of Cain's descendants named Lamech was boasting in his great evil, which was also murder. Then as we got into chapter 5, we noted the hopefulness that was found in chapter 5 last week. We were given the line through which the Messiah would come, the line of Seth. We were told about how Enoch walked with God. And then we saw a different Lamech. This is a Lamech from Seth's line who was hopeful that his son would be the promised offspring of the woman who would come and defeat Satan. Yet even amid the hopefulness of chapter 5, the reality of sin is still very much present in that chapter. The image of God and man, we noted, was marred. We are sons of Adam, not pristine images of God. But rather we have this sinful Adamic nature now as descendants of Adam, as human beings. And death, we noted, continued its reign, even throughout chapter 5. Even though we look and we marvel, it says they lived many, many years, more than we see any man live today. Nevertheless, the continual refrain, and he died, and he died. Death was still reigning even through chapter 5. And now as we come into chapter 6, things reach here something of a boiling point. In verses 1 to 4, we have examples of the deepening corruption that was found upon the earth. And then we get, as we get into verse 5 and into verse 6, we get God's very clear 
perspective, God's assessment of the situation, and particularly of what has become of man. And then this is followed in verse 7 by God's plan as he declares to bring judgment upon man, to blot them out. But then in verse 8, we're told that Noah would find favor. He would find grace from God. And so the, the plan at the start of the week was to cover all eight of these verses here today. But we're actually going to split this up into two different weeks. Uh, there is a lot here and there's some things I don't want to just rush past too quickly. And so today we're just going to cover, well, mainly verses 1 to 4. We'll dip into verse 5. But then we're going to really leave verses 5 to 8 more for next week. And so the outline here as we work through all eight verses over the next two weeks. First, the deepening corruption on earth. We see in verses 1 to 4. Second, the divine perspective on man. Verses 5 and 6. And divine judgment of man in verse 7. And then divine mercy upon man in verse 8. So again, we'll be looking at that over the course of the next two weeks, mainly focusing today on verses 1 to 4. So as we consider these verses, this passage, verses 1 to 8, there are a number of challenges that arise. I trust you understand that just through reading it. Uh, Some of the challenges are exegetical ones. That is, it's hard to know precisely what is being said, what is being described in verses 1 to 4. But then there are also some challenges that are maybe a little bit more internal for us. There are difficulties receiving, for example, the absolutely crushing and devastating verdict that God gives about mankind, especially in verse 5. So there are a number of difficulties, and we're going to take, there's some theological challenges as well as we read of God uh, having expressed, it says he, he had regret. We think, well, God doesn't change. He's not like a man. That The scriptures declare that. And so that's something that we want to give thought to and consideration to. What is this saying? What does this mean by that? And we'll save that one more for next week. And so while there are a number of challenges, and particularly in these first four verses that we look at today, The overall point that this is making, I think, is not terribly difficult to see. It's pretty clear. And that is that sin is so devastating that virtually the entire earth at this point had become corrupted. Such that God made the decision to wipe out everything that had the breath of life, minus Noah and some of his family, and some of the animals that God would also spare. We are familiar with this, especially as we get into the rest of chapters 6 through 9, and we think of Noah and the flood. This has often come to us, and we remember it as a children's story, with happy, smiley animals in an ark floating on a nice, calm sea. But the whole of what these chapters are describing is really very devastating reality of what is going on in the heart of mankind and what we deserve before God Almighty who is holy. This text assaults the pride of man, revealing what God really thinks, what his verdict is on fallen human nature. 
And we see what it is that humanity is capable of in this. And so it is certainly solemn to be sure. But even so, these verses are also not without all hope. And so let's begin looking at this deepening corruption upon the earth. As I said, in verses 1 to 4, we have a depiction of just how bad things had gotten, examples of it. But what precisely is being described here is not at all an easy thing to grasp or to, to conclude upon. There are three issues that we need to try to work through in these verses. One is, who are the sons of God and daughters of men that are referred to in verse 2? Secondly, what does it mean when God says that from now on their days shall be 120 years in verse 3? And then thirdly, this question of who are the Nephilim, which we see listed in verse 4. So let's begin here reading again verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. There are two main views about these verses and about who this is talking about when it talks about sons of God and daughters of men. One sees the sons of God as a reference to men from the line of Seth, which we looked at in chapter 5, while the second view understands the sons of God to be a reference to fallen angels who come and then enter into union with women. So the first, we're just go through both of these views. There isn't a really a consensus that exists. And both of these views are two of maybe the main views. And I do want to walk through both of them with you. And so the first one, again, is this view that the sons of God are the men from the godly line of Seth, which again, we looked at last week in chapter five. And then the daughters of man then would be women from the ungodly line of Cain. Perhaps just women in general, but likely the, the wicked line of Cain and their daughters and the women from them, from Cain's line. And so what this is describing then, according to this view, is that sin has had such an effect and such a rampant effect that even this godly line of Seth by this point, by the days of Noah, has become so degenerate, they are marrying simply on the basis of lust. It says the daughters of men were attractive, and that's the basis they're marrying them, and perhaps even marrying multiple wives and women, which was not God's design, which we looked at back in the earlier chapters of Genesis. And so even this line of Seth from whom the promised Messiah is going to come, even this line has become corrupted. And so in this view then, the Nephilim are often understood to be a line of probably large men who were full of violence, again, contributing to the corruption that was upon the earth. And we'll come back to uh, the Nephilim in a little bit. But this, this view is sometimes criticized and dismissed simply as it's you know, being held really just because it's, a, it's less weird. It's just a little less weird 
And therefore, that's the only reason that you might try to hold it. You really have to do violence to what's being said here in order to hold that view. And indeed, happy to acknowledge, it is less weird. It is a less strange uh, view of what's going on in this text. But there are other reasons why I think this view is somewhat compelling, at least. Other reasons to support it. First of all, if you think about the flow of this section in Genesis, which begins at the start of chapter 5 and verse 1 and ends in chapter 6, verse 8. So if you recall, when you see the, the generations of statements, these function as section headings throughout the book of Genesis. We see one in chapter 5, verse 1, which begins a new section, the generations of Adam. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, the generations of Noah begin a new section in verse 9. And so this section begins in chapter 5, 1, goes through to the end of, of verse 8 of chapter 6. And if you think about what is in that section, it features prominently the line of Seth through chapter 5. So this view certainly respects the context of this section and the flow of it. It would make sense if chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 is showing the demise of that line besides this figure, Noah. And we, of course, know that this did occur, which is why Noah is the only one who is spared. Beginning in verse 9, we'll look at in a couple of weeks. So it, it, it fits the context and the flow, not only of Genesis, but even of this very section. Secondly, while the term sons of God is not normally used to describe men in the Old Testament, the concept of sonship and sons of God is found in the Old Testament, and of course we know of it in the New Testament as well. So Israel, for example, is referred to as the firstborn, God's firstborn son, God calls them that. David is said to have a, a son, father-son relationship with God, and of course in the New Testament, we read of believers being adopted sons of God. So it's not at all unreasonable to see this as a reference to human beings, to the line of Seth. Fourth, another support for this view is that the judgment that is rendered in verse 3, right in the midst of all of this, is aimed not at angels, but at men. It says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. So one might argue that if the principal actors here are these wicked angels coming to earth, then it's interesting or maybe out of place that God's response is to, to punish human beings. Indeed, angelic punishment is nowhere explicitly mentioned here in these verses. God's response rather is very clearly aimed at mankind, at human beings. And then finally, the fact that it isn't a terribly weird view does, I think, have something going for it. The harder view is not always the right one. Sometimes the simplest answer is the best one. Moreover, there are, I think, legitimate questions that arise, fair questions about whether angelic beings could do this sort of thing and procreate with human beings. And so this is one of the views that is quite common. And frankly, I find it very, very compelling in many ways. But 
I don't, in the end, think it makes the most sense of this text and what we read elsewhere in the Bible. And so the second view now understands the sons of God in verse 2 to indeed be a reference to angels, particularly to fallen angels. We might say demons. This specific phrase, sons of God, that is used here is used four other times in this way in the Old Testament. In all other cases, in all four cases, it is clearly a reference to angelic beings. So there are three of these references that come in the book of Job. You probably remember this. In chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So this would have a very clear reference in Job, in all of Job's uses, to angelic beings. Also, in the book of Daniel, there's an Aramaic reference where King Nebuchadnezzar declares that there is a fourth man in the burning furnace, and he says the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It's a little bit of a different saying, but very similar, like a son of the gods, and he is saying he looks to be like an angelic figure. So while it's entirely possible that this reference to sons of God could refer to man, it is more normal in the Old Testament's use of it for that phrase to mean angels, angelic beings. So then in this view, it argues that, yes, indeed, fallen angels came to earth and sought unions with women. This would mean that these angels would have taken on a, a human appearance, certainly, which, of course, we do see elsewhere in the Bible, angels appearing as men. And even notably there, they, they never appear as females, but they're always appearing as male, as men, referred to in the masculine. And so obviously, if this is what the Bible is saying here, this is an odd story that stands out as being a bit, well, strange, odd. What in the world is going on here? How can this be? This isn't normal. And indeed, I think that's part of the purpose of it. But I do think there's further evidence that this is indeed what the Bible is telling us here. So for starters, this view that this is referring to angels became a dominant view amongst the Jews. So there's a number of written works that are not considered even by the Jews to be scripture, but they tell us what many were believing prior to the time of Christ, that this was indeed referring to angels. This view was a common view and generally accepted. Now, on its own, simply because that view exists, I wouldn't necessarily put too much weight into that, since that's, those writings are not scripture. They could easily be wrong. But in the New Testament, it appears in a couple of places to express a general agreement with that understanding and with that tradition. So if you want, you can flip to 2 Peter chapter 2, or I'll read some of that if you prefer to listen. In this chapter, Peter is encouraging the Christians as they battle against false teachers. And he turns to a couple Old Testament stories, a couple of examples here to encourage them that God does indeed judge the wicked and he does save his people. And so he's saying he has 
done this in the past. As we look to the Old Testament, we see this very clearly. God knows how to punish and judge, and he also knows how to save his people. And he's encouraging his folks that are reading this letter. He'll therefore do the same for you. And so here's what he writes, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So in verse 4 of 2 Peter 2, it references the punishment of angels who he says are cast into hell. Now we know that not all demons have been or were cast into hell at the time that he had written this. We see demonic activity. They weren't immediately cast there upon the fall of Satan and the angels that went with him. It seems to be a reference to a specific group of angels that Peter is speaking about. And then it is followed up immediately with talking about the ancient world in Noah's day. It seems to say that God punished the angels and the ancient world in Noah's day, but preserved Noah. So there's these negative examples. God punished the angels. God punished the wicked world, but he preserved Noah. And then he goes on to Sodom and Gomorrah. He punished the wicked in that city, but he preserved Lot. And Peter, again, is using that to, to, to comfort the people. If you're trusting in the Lord, he will preserve you as well. And so if Peter is using known Old Testament examples in 2 Peter, then we ask ourselves, what reference to angels is he talking about? And again, I think the most obvious answer would be the angels that sinned at the time of Noah, in Noah's day. It would be a little bit strange if this is some sort of unknown event when his other examples here are clear Old Testament examples. And then there's the other New Testament passage which we read earlier from the book of Jude, and especially in verse 6 which seems to refer to this exact same situation. So beginning in verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, that is likewise to the angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued 
unnatural desire, or more literally, different flesh. He says they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, this would very much fit with what we see here in Genesis chapter 6. Angels, as Jude says, leaving their proper place and undergoing a punishment, or sorry, and, and indulging in sexual immorality and different flesh and then undergoing punishment. Again, if it's not referring to Genesis 6, then this is very uncertain as to which angels he's referring to, since, again, we know that not all fallen angels have been kept in gloomy dungeons being held there until the day of judgment. And so these two passages seem to be commenting then on Genesis chapter 6 and seem to be understanding this reference to the sons of God to indeed be a reference to fallen angels. They seem to agree with the general tradition that had existed on this point. And they imply that while Genesis 6 doesn't speak of angelic punishment directly, that God nevertheless has indeed punished them and they are awaiting the final end and the final judgment. Now, some will wonder as we think about this view, doesn't Jesus tell us that in heaven angels neither marry nor are given in marriage? He seems to, he, well, he does say there, there is not procreation in heaven. And here this would view would seem to entail there's some sort of procreation with angels upon the earth. Jesus does teach us that. But Jude specifically tells us, if this is referencing to Genesis 6, that they left their proper dwelling. Right? The second Peter passage even speaks of uh, uh, particularly God will judge the immoral, the sexually immoral in particular, he's talking about, and those who despise authority, which is precisely what fallen angels have done. They've despised authority in this case. They've left their proper dwelling and they've come to do what they ought not to do. So it's not necessarily inconsistent. The angels in heaven do not marry, or nor are they given in marriage, but these left their proper place to engage in a strange immorality, to be sure. If we think of this view in terms of the context of the book of Genesis and the flow of Genesis, the understanding would be, if you think of why this story here, what, what's going on, the understanding would be that this is an example of Satan seeking to disrupt and pollute the lineage of man. That this is part of Satan raging against the offspring of the woman. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, when God is, is pronouncing the curse upon the devil, upon Satan, and he talks about how he gives the promise of an offspring of the woman who would come and crush the, the head, bruise the head of the serpent. There is just prior to that, an acknowledgement that there is going to be enmity. There's going to be war between the offspring of the woman and Satan. And so this in Genesis 6 would be an example of that. That perhaps this is part of a demonic plan to try to corrupt and pollute the, the line of promise. Perhaps an attempt to throw off the plan of God to bring the Redeemer. If you think of the book of Hebrews, if you remember there, it tells us that it was necessary, absolutely necessary, that is, it was essential that the Messiah would be truly a man, truly human in order to come 
and save human beings. Of course, we affirm Christ is truly God as well, but he had to be truly man. And so that could explain why it is here that Satan would seek to corrupt this line and dilute it and pollute it. Further, that these angels are locked up and held until the final judgment would seem to be God's way, one of the ways that he halted Satan's designs to bring this to pass, to corrupt the line of promise. So while this second view, again, presents difficulties, no doubt, and is a challenge, it's a view that is stranger to our ears, I think that it is a little more compelling in light of the whole of what the scriptures say. And I'll just add that I don't think any of this is impossible unless we come with some sort of naturalistic worldview in advance and want to place that over the scriptures. Uh, we acknowledge as those who believe the scriptures that there are a number of things that are odd to our ears that we find in scriptures. There are miracles and there are events that are not in the normal experience of man. We think of Balaam and this donkey that spoke. So unless we are to simply deny the miraculous, deny the reality of angels and demons, which the Bible very clearly portrays and teaches all throughout it, then while this might hit us again as strange... It reminds us of the cosmic battle surrounding God's plan to save a people through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to this point, we haven't even we haven't even settled we haven't even discussed the Nephilim yet. So let's look at verse four. See how this might fit. And we'll, and we'll come back a bit more to verse 3 in a moment. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Some take this group here, the Nephilim, to be the offspring of the angels and women union. That this is some sort of strange hybrid, even, of giants. And they would argue that this may well explain why it is that in almost all ancient mythologies, there is some sort of union between some godlike being and human beings. That perhaps this does all stem back to a common source, though those ancient mythologies, of course, are greatly exaggerated, embellished, but perhaps they're all drawing on a true event, just as many of those ancient mythologies likewise speak of a great flood, and yet very differently than the scriptures do. So it's possible that the Nephilim do indeed are the offspring of these strange unions that we read of in, in verses 1 to 3. However, I would lean toward a different view that the Nephilim are a separate group who were also on the earth at that time. So I think this is giving here a second example 
of the widespread corruption upon the earth at this time, just prior to Noah's flood. It seems a little better to understand this as a historical marker, that the Nephilim were also on the earth at the same time these angel-human unions were occurring. So they were, it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. They were there as this was happening and afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men so that they bore children to them. So these unions clearly did result in some type of offspring, it says there. But that seems to be separate from the Nephilim. The Nephilim are then explained again in the last sentence there of verse 4, that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. They're men. That word that's given to us here as Nephilim, that is just a transliteration of the Greek word. That is the Greek word, is Nephilim. And it has been understood as referring to giants. So the, in, the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, which probably dates to about the 3rd century B.C., they translate this with a Greek word, giants. But exactly what the word means is debated and difficult to determine. The Hebrew word from which Nephilim derives itself can have various meanings, but it can mean to fall, especially of violent death, to fall by violent death, or it can mean to fall upon, as in to attack another person. And so a common view that I think is, is very is plausible is that these were great men of old of tremendous violence who sought to make a name for themselves in and through their violence. They were, that's what men of renown means. They were men of name. And it's possible that these were very large men. I don't think we necessarily ought to think of them as being 40-foot-tall giants or however you might think of it. But certainly, a line of very large men who were very violent and were particularly known for this, renowned for this. If indeed this is a, more of a general name for a group of men, those who are big and, and filled with violence, and not specifically referring to the offspring of angels and demons, or angels and, and women, then it would explain why when the spies of Canaan go into Canaan and come back, they report in Numbers 13.33, and there in Canaan we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, that verse also has its own difficulties to it. We're not going to get into all of those. For starters, it could very well be that they're exaggerating in their claims of what they saw, that we seemed as grasshoppers to them and so on. But it does at least connect the idea of large and violent men to the memory of the Nephilim. So I don't think that is teaching us in numbers that this group of men, this Nephilim, this whoever they are, survived Noah's flood. But there's clearly a connection here of large, violent men. You think of men like Goliath, 
to this memory of the Nephilim. So I suggest then that what Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is doing is giving us different examples. First of all, the demon-woman unions. And secondly, the Nephilim, these large and violent men of renown, in order to reveal to us just how far and how bad things had fallen. Violence continues to advance in horrific fashion. These great and famous men of renown, this has advanced even from the days of the Lamech that came from Cain's line, where he's boasting at the end of chapter 4 of his violence. It's continued on. It's not abating. It is growing and getting worse. Moreover, demonic forces have also continued to wreak havoc upon the earth in their war upon God's purpose and plan and his people. And so this is meant then, I would suggest, to be very troubling to us and disturbing and a bit strange to consider all that is arrayed against all that is holy and against God. It is so far afield what we are reading here from God's revealed will. Remember, even his creation of one man and one woman to be united and to be fruitful and multiply, not only multiple wives being taken, but complete and utter corruption of this. And the implication in Genesis chapter 6 is that mankind is just very complicit in all of this. This is not being done against their desires or will. If this is indeed the correct interpretation, notice that Genesis 6 really does not sensationalize this. It doesn't even really spend a whole lot of time on this. It's not here for our entertainment purposes. To give us a crazy story, although like this one. It is mentioned really only very briefly. And the focus here remains upon man, the corruption of humanity. Yes, we know if, if indeed Second Peter and Jude are talking about this situation, God did punish these angels, these fallen angels. But the focus in Genesis is primarily upon human beings, upon mankind. And so this leads to our second point here, that we'll just touch on briefly and cover more next time. We move from this, these examples of the deepening corruption of man to the divine perspective on man. We are explicitly told God's take on all of this in these verses. Sometimes when we read a narrative, it's just telling us here's what happened and then after that came this and after that came this. It's a little bit more difficult to know. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What, what is this? We're not always sure what to make of it. Sometimes it's obvious, but not always. But sometimes God just tells us exactly what we ought to make of this. And he does that in these verses. First of all, look back at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. When God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, is seemingly a reference to the breath of life. The spirit is the same word as breath, is the life-giving power of God. It is used that way in verse 17, later in the chapter, when it speaks of God wiping out that which had the breath 
of life within. And so God is rendering a judgment here, even in verse 3. He's declaring that his spirit or the breath of life within man will not abide forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Again, the focus here is not upon angels, but it is upon man. Angels are not to be blamed. They're not to take the rap for mankind's sin. The implication very clearly would be that mankind is complicit in this and celebrating right along with this. The women involved and also their fathers and the other men around as well. There is one of those writings that comes from Jewish tradition prior to the time of Christ is the book known as First Enoch. It's a it's called a pseudepigraphical writing. It's that is it's falsely attributed to Enoch. It's not really written by no one really thinks it was actually written by the Enoch that we read about in chapter five of Genesis. But in there, as that book talks about this event and we see some of this tradition here of understanding these to be angels. That book does place blame for the corruption upon the earth, upon angels, in that writing. But while Genesis would seem to mention these angelic beings, the focus here remains upon mankind and doesn't shift the blame over to these other beings. And so God's punishment is aimed at man. And as for the 120-year limit, that is prescribed here, would it surprise you to know that there are at least two plausible views about what that is referring to? Seems like every other word here is like that. Some take this to mean that henceforth, this time forward, God would not permit man to live longer than 120 years. Again, we remember the long years from chapter 5 that men were still living in those days. And the thought of man and all of his evil living that long and getting better and better and more creative and more hardened in this evil over the course of hundreds of years is indeed a chilling thought. But if this is the intention here to limit man to 120 years of living and no more, we do have some examples of men and women who live longer than that in subsequent chapters. Nevertheless, it is rare, increasingly rare, and the ages of men and women are indeed reduced considerably as we continue through the book of Genesis. Such that if you think of the story of Abraham and Sarah, when Sarah is 90 years old and having a baby, that seems out of the question and impossible. Whereas again, in Genesis 5, that was actually fairly normal. So it could be that this is indeed what God had prescribed here in verse 3, and that this is a punishment and a judgment that is gradually brought to pass, gradually implemented. A second view that is plausible is that this is referring to the generation that was around when God declared this. That is, that it would be about 120, it would be 120 years until the flood, and he would wipe out those that were presently living. Again, that is entirely possible. Regardless, 
of whether it's a judgment upon all the men alive at that time, or it's more broadly upon man who will have fewer years, fewer days of his life, it is clearly, again, expressing God's displeasure and his judgment. What he thinks of what is going on. And then when we come to verse 5, we have what is perhaps the most crushing and devastating description of human beings that's found in the Bible. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that the wickedness is internal. It is not just that there were some grievous external acts that had been committed. It's internal. It's pervasive. The intentions and thoughts of his heart, it says. This is very much what Jesus teaches us when he teaches that it is out of the heart that flow evil thoughts and evil deeds. It is consistent with what we read throughout the scriptures. Further, he says, it was only evil continually. There's no let up to man's sin. We might read this and want to limit this purely to those who were alive in Noah's day in Genesis chapter 6. But after the flood, the analysis has not changed at all. I will never again, God says in chapter 8, curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. After the flood, it's Noah and his family, believers. And yet, this is still God's verdict and declaration. The situation has not changed, though God has wiped out most of those who lived. This is a species-wide problem. You may have noticed in the testimony that we heard earlier from Judah, reference to evil thoughts and confession of those. And perhaps you were tempted upon hearing that to think, well, you're just a young guy. You can't be that. That sounds a little extreme or a little harsh. If you think that way when you hear that, I'm telling you, you do not understand what the Bible says about sin. Only evil continually. Chapter 8. From his youth in his heart. We have been discussing this recently at our Wednesday night studies. As we've looked at this depravity of man. We've also noted this doesn't mean that every man is always as evil as he could possibly be. We know that's not the case. But man is evil continuously. These are sobering words that the Bible has for us. Perhaps nowhere as troubling as right here. We will pick up with that next week as we continue through in verses 5 to 8. But as we work through this text and we work through these verses, 
And we look at these details here, verses 1 to 4, and who are the sons of God, and these, these odd situations, and we find things that are honestly difficult to be very precise about and to be super dogmatic. You'll notice I haven't been super dogmatic about who the sons of God are, the Nephilim, and so on. But what do we take away from this? What can we hang our hat upon? Well, this is yet another place in the scriptures where the depravity of man is very clearly put forward to us. Exactly how we understand even verses 1 to 4. The purpose of it here is to show us how corrupt things had become at this time. Genesis continues to reveal to us in various ways the absolute necessity for a Savior, for a Messiah to come. How quickly we are into the Bible. We're in chapter 6. And the earth that had been created good is in complete chaos and wickedness, such immorality and violence. And who knows what other kinds of wickedness that is not clearly spelled out here for us, such that it is just for the Creator to come and say, I will blot them out. Again, we have to not relegate this to some child story that is somehow less than devastating in what it says about humanity and our condition and our problem. This is what mankind is. Do you hear your God tell us about what's in the human heart? It is remarkable, in light of what is said here, that things are not more disturbing in our day than they already are. God's restraining hand, no doubt, can be seen in the fact that we experience good at all around us. That it isn't complete and total lawlessness and chaos. Because it would be if he were to completely remove that restraining hand. We also see in these verses here the raging of Satan and the fallen angels against the Lord, seeking to indeed thwart his purposes and rage against the Lord's people. And so again, we are reminded of what it is that this whole book of Genesis and the whole of the scriptures are about. We are reminded of the absolute necessity of the offspring of the woman the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to fix this. To bring about the forgiveness of sins. To bring about a new creation that begins within the heart of sinful man. That deals with the heart. That is not just about cleaning up some external behaviors, but deals with what is going on inside. And indeed, Christ has come. He has made a way. For sinners to be forgiven as he came and he took God's wrath and judgment upon himself at the cross. Dying in the place of sinners and satisfying God's just demand for death. That is the wages of sin. And he has risen from the dead. And at this present moment, he sits, as scripture tells us, at the Father's right hand. And his church, those who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to take this 
good news forward to a world that is sinful and hopelessly so. We proclaim that there is forgiveness, there is grace from the almighty holy God to all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who would repent of their sins, confess their fallenness and sinfulness to God, and look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is a time where God continues to save His people out of sin. As God uses the means of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, going forth into the world to draw sinners to Himself through His Spirit, saving His children out of this fallen world, making them new within, giving a new and clean heart out of which they turn willingly and gladly and joyfully to God in faith and live their days unto Him, looking to the Lord Jesus' return. And that day will come, that day will come, when Christ Jesus will return in glory and He will set everything right, bringing about final judgment to all the ungodly. Did you notice that in the Second Peter passage and in Jude, both of them referring to that day to stir up the hope of Christians, that that will be just when God does that. And God will also, on that day, raise up all who've died in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to everlasting life in the new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness will reign and dwell. And this is the gift of God's grace that is given to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we consider Genesis and as we consider the passage we've just looked at, see the sinfulness of the human heart, but not only just out there, but also in your own heart, Bring it into this light and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ while there is yet time. As Paul says, be reconciled to God through faith in His Son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that what You say is true. And You have given clear and devastating judgment of what resides inside of mankind, born in Adam. And yet, Father, this is also a kindness that you would reveal this to us, that we might also see that you have revealed the answer to this problem in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that, it would, that we would joyfully and gladly confess our sins before you, that we would know that you will not despise the broken heart and cast us away, but that with you there is forgiveness for all who believe in your Son. Father, make this our sole boast today and every day. We look forward to the day when our Lord will come and he will set everything straight. Father, we pray that you'd give us courage to speak of these things and to speak of the hope of Christ 
to the fallen world. Father, we thank you that you have been merciful to us and patient with us and you continue to be. So we praise you together in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.